I appreciate those words, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity to speak tonight with my church family. And I look out and see your smiling faces, and I'm glad it's not a frowning face. <laughs> I suppose that would be a little bad start to be up in front and look at some faces that were like, oh boy. <laughs> um, but I very much appreciate those words and those uh, gray hairs that are up here. I probably got those, you know, from starting in the youth ministry so young and working with young people and have really never left, still teaching high schoolers. And now, you know, Sister Shoshan asked us to grow these beards out for the drama coming up, and I, I was all for trying. And, and I still hope that something will happen. <laughs> The best beard hairs are the gray ones. They're just sticking out real great. All the rest. Anyhow, hallelujah. But I am grateful for the opportunity. And um, tonight, uh, I was so struck uh, Sunday by Bishop's message Sunday morning about Josiah. And I really couldn't get that off of my mind. And um, when you tie it in for what the topic is tonight anyways, it blended so perfectly, and I feel like the Lord has a word for us tonight. And I don't know if you've noticed my little girl, Adley, who's seven years old, uh, might be hard. She's very tiny, might be easy to miss her, but um, she's been coming up to the altar every single service that she's in here, and she's trying to get the Holy Ghost. <laughs> She wants to get the Holy Ghost. I'm very glad, very glad, of course, as a father. And I will be up here leading worship. And I'm just being a little honest. It's like, oh, here she comes again. <laughs> and, and she comes up, and she's so sincere. Her hand's going up, and she's praying. And if you recall when Brother Crowder was here a few weeks ago, she was praying like marathon prayer. She was going she was determined, and she wasn't going to stop. She just kept going and going. I'd have, I'd have been over it a long time before she kept on going. And she was praying and praying, and after it was finally done, not, I don't mean it to sound like that. Of course, I want her to get the Holy Ghost, and we got to seek it, of course. Uh, but after she was done, it was really touched my heart because she looked at me and she said, Well, Dad... One person kept telling me, just say, just say Jesus, just say Jesus, just say Jesus. So I kept saying Jesus, and then somebody else came and prayed for me and said, why do you just keep saying Jesus? <laughs> tell him, tell him you love him. Tell, so she said, I said, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus. And then somebody else came and prayed with me and said, why do you just keep saying I love you, Jesus? Just say his name, just say his name. <laughs> and I thought, oh, sweetheart. <laughs> All of it was good. Saying his name, telling him you love him, and her little seven-year-old mind, all of that is great. And trying to encourage her, and I don't want her to stop seeking it. I don't want her to get tired and think, oh, I've been seeking all this time, I'm not getting it. But then she asks me some hard questions. She asked me the other day, Daddy, what if someone is praying for the Holy Ghost and trying and trying and trying and trying to get the Holy Ghost and they keep trying and and what happens if they die and they never got it 
Well, honey, whew, that's a deep question. And then how do you answer that for a little seven-year-old to understand? And I said, God is just. God is just. He knows your heart. He knows what you're seeking after. He knows you've been seeking the Holy Ghost. And he's like, it doesn't matter. You have to trust that God's going to do the right thing, and he's just. And also, you don't have to worry about that. You just keep praying every time you get a chance for the Holy Ghost. How many of you know God is just? As I was praying and thinking of Adley and uh, questions like that, that's not the only hard question she's asked, but that's the most recent one that came to mind. And I was thinking about Josiah, and Josiah was only eight years old when he became king. And he, an eight-year-old mind, if it's anything like a seven-year-old mind, how could an eight-year-old run a kingdom? Of course, we know he had counselors and those to help him run the kingdom. But as Josiah grew, he became more and more desirous to serve the Lord. And he was putting God first. But before we go on in Josiah's story, we really need to back up a little bit and talk about some of the history just before him. In fact, if we go not his father, but his grandfather, Josiah's grandfather was king. His name was Manasseh, and he was king in Israel, actually in Judah, the southern kingdom, for the longest reign. He was the longest reigning king, and also, the Bible says, the most wicked king. He did terrible things. In fact, Manasseh was so bad that he set up altars in the temple to false gods. And that's pretty bad. The holy temple of God, and God said, I am a jealous God. You will have no other gods before me. And yet, here Manasseh sets up other altars to false gods in his temple, where he said, I would put my name there. And then, that wasn't enough. Manasseh actually carved an idol, the Bible says, and set that up inside the temple. Not just in the court, but now inside the temple, we've, that is the most desecrating thing that you could do to God's temple is not just worship false gods, not set up things outside the temple, but to bring in an actual idol, which he said, don't make an image of any god, don't worship any other god besides me, and yet here he goes and sets up an idol in the temple of God. Utter wickedness as far as God's concerned, but we have no record of anybody at that time complaining about it. Not the priests, not the high priest, not the people of Israel. Nobody said a word. Now, I know the king is sovereign, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that tonight. You might not raise your voice contradicting the king. I can understand fear of trying to go against the king's word. But when it came between the king and God, at the very least, you would have thought the high priest would have an issue with setting up an idol in the temple. No record of anyone saying one word about it. And here we go. Wickedness, the wickedness of Manasseh got him in trouble. 
And this king was conquered by uh, some uh, Babylonians, taken to Babylon, and actually uh, imprisoned in Babylon for his sins. And while he was in prison, Manasseh repented. And how many of you know that God likes a repentant heart? He responds to repentance. And so Manasseh repented, the most wicked king who had really done the most heinous acts. It says he burned his children in the fire, in fact. He did terrible things to worship false gods, and yet when he realized that God was God and repented of his sins, God set him right back up. Doesn't explain how. I can't fathom how, but Babylon let him go. Sent him back, let him take his throne again. And then he built walls in Jerusalem. Like, I'm not going to get conquered again. And he built some bigger walls, the Bible says. I don't know. I can't fathom how that process worked where the um, subverting country said, just go back, take your throne. It's okay. Build a wall. Just fine. But that happened because God is God. And God honored his repentance. And he was set back on his throne. He lived the rest of his life. And then he, of course, died and his son took over. But his son, Ammon, this would have been Josiah's father, Ammon didn't get the repentance memo. Didn't realize, because when Manasseh came back, I told you he built a wall, but he also took down the idol that was in the temple, took down the altars for false gods in the tabernacle or in the, in the court, and he uh, cleaned house, so to speak. Yet his son still worshipped the false gods. And so when he took the throne, he set up the idolatry again. We didn't hear that there was a, a new god placed in the, tab in the temple again, but we do know that he did all the wickedness of his father, the Bible says. And then he only served two years before he was killed. And then Josiah at eight years old is crowned king. And that's when we see Josiah take his, uh, his opportunity to be king. While he's there, though, uh, during the reign of Manasseh and during the reign of Ammon, the tabernacle, or in the, I keep saying tabernacle, the temple, this is not the tabernacle, the temple of God was under disrepair. Because even when Manasseh came back and took down the idols, we have no um, history of it being repaired. And so when Josiah took over, and not at eight years old, but as he grew and matured in his relationship with the Lord, he realized, wow, this tabernacle, this temple, I'll get it right, it's been a long day. This temple is in disrepair. We need to, this is God's house. We need to treat it as such. And so he commanded that they set the tabernacle, that they get to repairing it, the temple, going to be okay. <laughs> I had parent-teacher conferences tonight <laughs> till 6.30. I haven't stopped moving. So here, <laughs> this thing hasn't stopped moving yet. So apologies. <laughs> Just stick with me, kids. It'll be fine. Buckle your seatbelts, though. <laughs> Might be a bumpy ride. All right, if we turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 8, this passage gets me because 
Here is when they're repairing the temple and they're going through and, and cleaning house, whatever was wrong, they're fixing it. They're making the temple good again. Hilkiah, the high priest, the high priest, the top spiritual dog of the kingdom, the high priest. This part is so sad to me because of all people, this is the person who finds the book of the law of the Lord. How did it get lost? How did the high priest, the spiritual leader, how did he lose this book of the law of the Lord? And we read it, Bishop read it on Sunday, and Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And we get this idea that here is the high priest of all people that didn't know there was a book of the law. I don't know if he knew it was there to be found. It doesn't, we can't tell by the scripture if he knew it was there and just lost or, if, wow, look at this book of the law we never knew of before. Here it is. And I got to thinking about that because I love history and I love biblical history and I love biblical archaeology and I feel like I should have studied that in college and I would love to go. I wanted to so bad when we were in Israel just to take my free day and find a dig somewhere. I'll volunteer. Just let me dig something up. Um, it's so amazing to me. And, and the more they dig, the more they find evidence that to me corroborates the Bible. And anyhow, the high priest didn't know that this book was missing, this book of the law. And as you study, you see that uh, of all people that he should have been the one to find it. So I thought, how, how did they worship during this time, during Manasseh's reign and Ammon's reign, how did the high priest function? Did he break the law and worship? Did he sacrifice to that idol? Would the high priest have done that? I can't fathom that. The lineage of Aaron, the ones that are the high priest of Judaism, how could that person worship a false god, offer sacrifices to a false god. How could that happen? I can't, I can't picture that in my mind. Did that happen? Was that how they worshiped? Or did they further desecrate the temple? I mean, at this point, if there's an idol in there, I guess it doesn't matter if you have priests for that idol come in and they do their own whatever ritual for that idol and the high priest stays holy to God. I don't, how could the high priest wear the crown that says holiness unto the Lord and function in the Holy of Holies and do all of the things that they should have been doing with an idol right there? I, I can't picture it. I'm hoping that I'm uh, conveying this sense of what in the world would they have been doing? What would that religion have even looked like or been like? And it's interesting that Hilkiah, the high priest, is never scolded. So maybe he was serving the Lord righteously with an idol in the temple. I don't know. Bottom line, those all speculation, all wonder, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is this. When Josiah 
hears this book read to him, he rends his clothes. The Bible says he rent his clothes in, in utter sorrow that he had broken, not just him, but that his whole people had broken these covenants, this promise of God. And not only so, but he knew that if you serve me and follow my commandments, you will live and be blessed. If you break them, you will be cursed. And he made no bones about it. God said, if you serve me and do what's right, you will live and be blessed. If you break my covenant, you will be cursed. And that's the judgment and justice of God. Only the people of Israel had that covenant with him. The rest of the people had to follow what is called the Noahide laws or Noah's laws. And that's similar to the Ten Commandments. There were seven of them, but you can kind of wrap up the Ten Commandments. So if you were Gentile, not Jewish, you still could serve God, and you should serve God. You just had to follow these basic, basically the Ten Commandments was what they had to follow. And that was okay. You could have a good relationship with God. In fact, some Jews didn't want you to convert to Judaism because then you had to follow all 713 laws of the Torah that God had made a covenant with his people that they would follow. And so sometimes they'd say, don't convert. I'd rather you just follow the Noahide laws and just be okay, serve God, great, than to convert and have to follow all of these ones. Does that make sense? And so as, God, as Josiah heard this word read to him, he realized the severity of his actions and his people's actions, and he rent his clothes and humbled himself before the Lord. And then he sent people to ask God, can you tell us what do we do now? We don't want to continue serving idols. We're going to do right. We got this book that we didn't even know existed, and here we are. We've read it. We know that we're in trouble, that your judgment is going to come down on us. What can we do now? And so if you'll read with me in, actually, let's back up to Deuteronomy chapter 5, chapter 5 and verse 1. The law was so important to the Jews, and the covenant that was made between God and the Jews from Mount Sinai, that they would follow this law, all 713 of the laws that we find in, in the Torah. Those laws are so important that, let's read these verses because it's pretty powerful. Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 1, And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep them, and do them, all of these laws. Verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, and that's Mount Sinai, and here is verse 3, the Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. Now that verse carries heavy weight for Jews even today. Because read that again, the Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us. The us standing there, there were only three men that were original out of Egypt and there at this moment. 
All the rest of the people had wandered the wilderness for 40 years and died in the wilderness. So the people he was talking to was him and Caleb and Joshua were the only ones that were there at Mount Sinai. Just those three. The rest had not come out of Egypt. And so when he says to them, all of us here alive this day, the Jews take that to mean this is not for our fathers. Every Jew is born into this. We make this covenant as if we were right there on Mount Sinai. All of us alive today are right now bonded, bound to this covenant. Isn't that powerful statement? That that we have to follow. God made this covenant with the people at Mount Sinai, and it's not generational, it's first generation. Every single person born a Jew is required in bonded to this law. Okay, I like that. I can tie that into Pentecostalism. I can tie that into our church today. I can tie that first generation, third generation. It doesn't matter what you are. You need, there's no grandchildren of God. We all have to be first generation. Amen? And yet here, this powerful passage lets you know that when Josiah read this scripture, and they suspect, not, it's not known for sure what book this was. The Bible doesn't specifically say. But many scholars believe it was the book of Deuteronomy. And, of course, you find so much of the law in Deuteronomy. And some scholars, the academia of the world, say that that Deuteronomy may not have even been written by Moses, but maybe it was written by contemporaries at this time who were concerned about the shape of Israel, and we need to shape it up. And so they wrote Deuteronomy, and whoo, hey, this book of the law we just found in the temple, and, and snuck it in there that way. Now, I'm not saying that I believe any of that. This is the word of God, and it stands true, and it will abide forever. The five books of the beginning of the Bible and all the rest. Amen? But it is interesting to think that here is Josiah reading these words or hearing these words read to him, and he realizes how bad things are with their covenant with God when they should have been the ones, because look, this verse is found in Deuteronomy, so might have been reading this very passage. And he hears, those of us alive this day are required to follow this law, and we haven't been doing it. So he does send a group, and he says, let's go and find out what it is that uh, we must do. So 2 Kings chapter 22, and starting in verse 14, it tells us a little bit of what happened. So Hilkiah the high priest, and Hikam and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Azahiah went unto Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikva, the son of Haras. Did I get all that? I don't know if it's right, but I read them. Keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they communed with her. Verse 15. And she said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you to me. Thus saith the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon this place. And upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book 
which the king of Judah hath read. God said, I'm going to do it. I said I would do it, and I am just, and I am God, and I'm going to stand on my word. I'm going to do it. Next verse, verse 18. But to the Mm, because, I'm sorry, verse 17, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. That sounds pretty serious. In verse 18, but to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall ye say to him, thus saith the Lord God of Israel as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender, God loves a repentant heart. Amen? And thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord when thou heardest what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hast rent thy clothes and wept before me. I also have heard thee, saith the Lord." And verse 20, Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into, the grave, into thy grave in peace, and thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. That's heavy. I'm sorry this isn't funny. I'm sorry this isn't, you know, let's make light and feel good. It's heavy. God is just. And he is going to have his just moment. What he said he would do, he's not a liar. He will do it. But he will have mercy. And when he repented, when Josiah repented, God said, I will have mercy on you. I'm going to do what I said I would do. But for you, you will be blessed. You will have a good life. You will not see the things that are coming onto your people. And when you do the math, it was about 50 years later that Babylon came and destroyed that temple after Josiah had passed away. So when I was thinking about this, I started to think, okay, here's the justice of God. God is just. And we have to remember that as sovereign, he's God. He created everything. He's the one in control. He's absolutely sovereign, and so just because of who he is, what he says goes, because he's God. Now, he won't contradict himself, and what he's promised, the Bible says he's not slack concerning his promises. What he promised, he's going to perform it. He's going to do it, but he's still God. And I heard it said once, uh, how do you describe God? Well, God is like, like a lion, you can cuddle up, you can cuddle up to God, and you feel some soft fur. You might be able to press into him a little bit, feel, maybe you can get him to purr, I don't know. But if you pet for too much further, you're going to come along some pretty sharp claws. And, and you might find some pretty sharp teeth in this lion. We, we know the soft part of God because us today we have grace and mercy but we can't forget that he's got claws and teeth too he's still God and when you're sovereign and totally in control there's never a moment with God that God is scared there's never a moment with God that he's unaware of the outcome there's never a time when God is wringing his hands I don't know what's going to happen next 
And that actually gives me some great comfort because I can find myself wringing my hands at times. I can find myself worried about this or that until I remember my God is in control. It, what am I worrying about? He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He spoke the world into existence. He spoke the universe into existence. Just the power of his word keeps the universe going. It was only humanity that he used his hands to make. Wow, that's the God we serve. So what should I worry when I have something at work going on or something's going on that I don't have any control over? Wring my hands, worry about it, or put it in the hands of that God who can control everything, amen? That's this God who is just and sovereign. And I envy these people who are, you know, we took, not that long ago, a few years maybe, we took those uh, personality tests here at the church and tried to find what your personality was. And uh, I envy those people who are the J, like they, they can make judgment calls, real, real good, quick snap judgment calls. I, I'm not that guy. I would never make a good doctor because I'd be, oh, well, we could do this, and we could do this, and I don't know, if we took over this, he's bleeding out. I have to think. I want to think of all the different angles and analyze this and analyze that. And a lawyer, I'm working with Sister Sheena right now. She is, um, I did this thing in my classroom where, I mean, literally, let me just explain quickly. We are learning the science because um, based on a true story in the 1930s and 40s, a man in, in the Netherlands apparently forged a painting, but it was acclaimed as being an original. He, everybody thought this painting that he had painted, they thought it was an original. So he sold it to the Nazis, and after the war is over, they find this painting and his name associated with it, and they put him on trial for conspiring with the Nazis, a punishable by death. And he says in prison, like, look, I'm not conspiring with the Nazis. I didn't conspire with the Nazis because it's not a real painting. I painted that. I just said it was one of his. And so they put him on trial for that. And so we're taking that scenario and we're learning about the science and how to identify whether it could be a fake or an actual real original painting and blah, blah. And I thought, that's a great idea. I found it somewhere. I didn't create it totally on my mind uh, of my own self. But, um, and then we would do a mock trial in my classroom. This is what I was thinking. How fun would that be to have a mock trial, put this guy on trial and have So I talked to Sister Sheena and said, hey, what could we do to do a mock trial? Wrong decision. I should not have asked Sister Sheena. She says, ooh, mock trial. And she gets all excited. And, and she's ready. She says, okay, let's do this. I can give you the stuff to do mock trial. I said, well, I, I was hoping you'd come in and talk to my class. And she's like, yes, I'll do that. And then I will get you into the courtroom so you can do your mock trial in front of a real judge. Oh. Hey. And she did it. <laughs> and so next week we're going in. My 80-some students in physical science are going to the courtroom to do a mock trial. Whew. And I am so nervous. 
because I don't, I know nothing of the legal system, know so very little. Uh, but Sister Sheena, she has been great. She's come, walked me through it, and I'm very glad. I'm, I'm joking about how nervous, no, I am very nervous. <laughs> and really, I just thought it would be my kids in my class, first period, we'll do it again in sixth period, whatever. I didn't think we were going to be in front of an actual judge in the courtroom. We have now, I've assigned roles. One's going to be the bailiff, and one's going to be the clerk the clerk of courts, and one's going to, we have the prosecuting attorneys and the defense attorneys, the whole deal. And Sister Sheena's like, oh. and I'm like, oh. but it's great. It's good. And we'll, I will be one happy man Monday afternoon when this is over. But saying all that, boy, lawyers have to make some quick decisions on the spot. And they have to say, innocent, guilty, or this piece of evidence goes in, this piece of evidence doesn't. And I'm like, oh, I see your point. Oh, I understand what you're saying. And then go to the other side. Oh, I see your point. Oh, okay. Oh, how are we going to make this work? It's, it's not easy to make judgment calls, at least not for me. But we serve a God who is the king. So what he says, that's the call. He, he's the judge. He's the final say. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 4 says it like this. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what you doing? Nobody. Nobody can ask the king, what are you doing? He's, he's the king. When you're talking to God, you can't say, why did you do it this way, God? Why? Oh, and you see how that opens up some places in your heart? Like, I, I could have some questions for him. You know, I could wonder why God did this or why this was allowed to happen in my life or why this happens. Or Anybody ever had a question like that? It's okay. You can ask God the hard questions. He can handle it, but he's still sovereign and he's still just. And you might not understand it, but he knows what he's doing. Amen? There's lots of references to... God's justice. In Numbers chapter 14, we see uh, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. He's still just, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation. In Romans chapter 9, he's referring to an Old Testament thing, but it's found in the New Testament. He's talking about Rebecca here in verse 9. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 9 of Romans, it says, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, for he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then is it not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy? They were in the womb, Jacob and Esau. Didn't have time to do anything wrong. And God said, I love Jacob, hated Esau. But he's God. The next verse, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. 
He said, I set up Pharaoh to show how good I am. I called Pharaoh to this point. He said it to the king of Babylon too. Hey, I've called you Nebuchadnezzar to this time to show my power. I've called you to do my work. God is just. And one of my favorite examples is with Peter and John. We find it in John chapter 21, starting in verse 18. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, this is Jesus talking, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. He's talking to Peter at this moment. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hand, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This he spake, signifying by what death he should glorify God. So he's prophesying to Peter. And when he had spoken this, he saith to him, follow me. Then Peter, having a very human response, sees his friend John over here. He's turning around and seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was John's way of saying me. He wrote John. He never said himself. He just said the disciple Jesus loved. And he says, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? That's John. Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Like you just prophesied my end. What about, what about John? What are you going to do for old Johnny here? And the next verse, Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? This has nothing to do with you. Don't worry about him. My judgment is my judgment. What I do with him is what I do with him. What I do with you is what I do with you. Are you submitted to me? Do you really give up the reins? Do you really die to yourself daily and let God take control every day? Or is it just talk? Can you say, I see what you're doing with this one, God. Bless him. Let me follow you. Let me follow you. Let me follow you. You are just, and I will do what you say. Amen? It's okay to question God. Little Adley came to me and asked some pretty hard questions, and I'd rather she do that than stew on them, never find an answer, or make up some answer on her own that may not be right. I'd rather her ask me the questions. God's the same. If you have a hard question, ask him. Amen? The next point is, you might not like the answer you get, and you might not even be able to comprehend it. He said in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You might have questions, and God may not give you an answer. It may be yes, it may be no, and it may be just wait. We don't know. Are you okay with that? Are you okay to say, God, you're in control. I've given you control. I don't understand why this is happening, but I do trust you, and I trust you with everything I am, so what I'm going through now, you've got a reason, and you know the end, and we're going to get through it, and I'm going to trust you for it. Amen. There comes a point in our lives when we have to, in our Christian walk with God, acquiesce to his sovereignty. We have to die to ourselves and 
be like Jesus. Jesus prayed the most agonizing prayer of his life. In fact, so agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he sweat drops of blood because he was faced with the crucifixion and going through his passion. And his flesh didn't want to do it. And so he prayed three times, but every time he came back and said, not my will, but thine be done. And how can we compare our lives to that agony? He hasn't called me to that. Amen? So whatever I'm going through can't compare to what he's gone through. And the Bible then says, for the joy that was set before him. All of that agony, all the things that he was so, his flesh didn't want to go through to sweat drops of blood. It still says, but for the joy that was set before him. I want my trials, my tribulations, my rough times to be the joy when I look back and think what God has done for me. Amen? And I'm coming to a close here. When I consider that temple that Josiah found in such disrepair and so neglected that they even lost the law, the book of the law, I think today here is this physical temple that we have, and we call it the church. And I do try to teach my children, you know, if we find something on the ground, pick it up. This is the house of the Lord, and it's our house. If you wouldn't leave it a mess, let's pick up whatever we've left, or some, I know it's gross, but even, even tissues, I have them pick them up, <laughs> and then we'll have to wash our hands. But this is the house of God, right? I don't want this to fall in disrepair. In fact, I can say the pastor doesn't either. Look at what we're doing downstairs right now, trying to keep the water out of the basement and what we're doing as a church body and trying to keep the house of God in a state of usefulness. But I think it even goes deeper than that. We have the temple here, but we also have this temple. And the Bible says it's the temple of the Holy Ghost. And I was thinking about Josiah repairing the house of the Lord, and I thought, God, what about my temple? Is it in disrepair? Worse yet, could there be some idol somewhere tucked away in a corner or in a room that I haven't, I haven't cleared out? I want this temple to stand pure and to let God inhabit this place. Amen? I don't want my temple to fall into a place of disrepair and be spiritually so decrepit or desecrated that the Lord can't move, that I can't hear the voice of the Lord anymore, that I've lost what I once had in his word, that I don't even realize something's missing. That's the worst, that you don't even know you've missed the word of God. I don't want that to be me. And Lord, if it has come to that place, remind me again. Wash this heart out again. Let's, get, let's take out anything that might come against you. I want this place to be pure and holy and good and not in a state of disrepair, but in a place of reverence for the Holy Ghost. Amen.